Well, good morning, church. I'm so excited for this moment, for this day, to encourage you. Um, if you are here for the first time, welcome, welcome. One thing I want to say to you is you belong here. You belong here. You are welcome here. Um, and before I get into all the intros and all the jazz and the fun stuff, let's just take a moment to have a 30-second conversation with God. Father, we just <laughs> thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, may you be revealed today as we hear your word, as we consider your message of hope. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You are speaking through me right now, and you are touching everyone's hearts and opening our ears to see, to know who Jesus is. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just a brief intro of myself, if you didn't know. I'm Thai. Um, my first name is Tylene, but I like everyone to call me Thai. Um, I'm half Filipino, half American, and I arrived in Seattle last year, April of last year, due to immigration issues and COVID. I used to live in Malaysia um, for 15 years at least, and now I'm here. Hallelujah. And... Uh, <laughs> I can confidently now stand here and say that God had a plan all along and a reason, um, but that was really tough. It was hard. Um, but I just want to take this opportunity to quickly thank and honor pastors, pastors Dave and Ryan, the first people I met when I came here on time and thought that no one is here and maybe I missed the service. Um, that was the beginning <laughs> of God's kind of work happening in my life and, and his revelation of his plans for me here. Um, I want to take this opportunity to honor my husband, whom I miss, whom I love so dearly, who is probably watching right now with heavy eyes. <laughs> I love you, Javon, and I miss you so much. And I want to honor my spiritual parents and friends and family and everyone here <laughs> that has loved me and prayed for me and have, has always just had such an open arm to just welcome me into your lives, into your homes, and for that... I thank you, and I'm truly, truly grateful. Um, Christmas time is one of the most, my most favorite seasons, but also hardest seasons of the year. Um, sure, we face all kinds of trials and challenges throughout the year, but there's something about December. When all this talk about Jesus coming into this world, the excitement of Christmas parties and celebrations and getting gifts and spending time with the loved ones and seeing all these beautiful decorations and these lights and sparkles and juxtapose that with news of sudden loss, with a feeling of internal isolation and loneliness that often arises and is even more magnified in this season. Struggles with mental health brought brought about by all kinds of worries and cares and anxieties, and it seems like it's all a really sick joke. It almost seems like this light, this goodness, reveals even more the pain and hardships and make, makes it hurt more. It's almost like the season of perfect coziness all the more reveals the perfect brokenness that we can't seem to run away from, no matter how much glitter and gold we throw at it. And I don't know about you, but I have at moments wondered, Lord, what's the use of all of this when there is still suffering? Jesus, you've come and gone now, and we are here once again in the same position, in the same place as the believers in the Bible, believing for the coming one, except ours is his second coming, the part two, the season finale. But what is the difference between us today and those who lived before Christ waiting for that promise? 
Tomorrow is 19th of December. It would mark 11 years when I, uh, 11 years um, of the moment that I got a call um, that my father had been killed in a fatal accident. This was the catalyst of what would be the most hardest and darkest years of my life. <laughs> Losing my father, I laugh when I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm not laughing at my father dying, okay. Um, losing my father had this immense physical and emotional effect on me. Not, not just because he died, like losing anyone in your life, whether you were close with them or not, it's painful. But I felt at that time what the devil said of my life seemed to be true and final, that I am alone now. No one loves me, no one cares, I don't belong to anyone. My father was the only person I knew that was connected to me fully by blood, and I've never met my mom in my life. Everyone else was a step-relative, a half-sibling that quickly moved on with their own lives and didn't want to do, have to do anything with mine. And I shared this story. I shared this story around this time last year. I don't know if you guys were here, um, but spoiler alert, you can see me standing here and you, you've heard how God has come around, come, how everything has come around in my life especially after I decided to make Jesus as my Lord and Savior and make God, about, make God my everything. But I want to talk this morning about the tensions of facing unfulfilled expectations in my own life, even after I received the gift of salvation. As I was alluding to earlier, Jesus is in my life now. I know he's coming, I know the promise, but I'm still here facing this broken world, facing the remnants of my broken past every day, rather seeing it through my family, through the trials and challenges and disappointments that I face. Case in point right now, my husband not being here with me due to visa issues. And as I was preparing this message and seeking God and asking him all these questions that were heavy on my heart, he put um, this story Um, into my mind, the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus found in John 11. And here, too, is a story about loss, pain, disappointment, changed expectations. And I couldn't help but draw so many parallels of truth and much encouragement for my own life, and I hope it does for you. So let's read it together. In John 11, let's just read the whole story. If you have the Bible in the pew, that Bible that's there, right there, yep. Um, It is in page 953, and chapter 11, we start with, I'll just go ahead if you're there, yeah. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was, and after that he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, Just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there twelve hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. 
Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection in life. The one who believes in me, even even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had no place, had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he, de- he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eye also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he had been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that you, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Wow. Lots to unpack, but first I'd like to note that the Gospel of John is unique in the way he describes explicitly the nature and degree of Jesus' personal relationship towards Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These three people, this family, they are loved. Jesus loved them. And after all, John even describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I love that confidence. But for a minute, let's put aside all the things we just read, all the circumstances we know that eventually plays out, and let's lean into the different ways Mary and Martha interact with Jesus and the way he responds to them um, in in a way that we don't expect him to. And what is the point 
I was asking God, what is the point, Lord, of bringing Lazarus back to life if eventually he's going to die and be resurrected at the end times anyway, as Martha alludes in her encounter with Jesus? I know, we're all going to be resurrected. Um, I had this image in my face of Lazarus, Lazarus waking up, and he's seeing the gates of heaven. And he's like, oh, I'm here. I made it. Wait, no, no. And he falls, and then he's in this darkness, and his little eye is peeping out of the grave cloth, and he's like, what? what? Am I back here again? And then all of a sudden, the door opens and there's a light and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he's like, okay, I guess I'm back in this life again. Um, and, I, and I assume, like, I don't know, but I think Lazarus would be the only person to have died twice and woken up or resurrected with Jesus welcoming him. And I think that's cool. Um, before we explore the reason and purpose of this grand sign and, and miracle, I have three main movements that I see happening in the story, and just for the sake of structure, and that is building a case, gathering the evidence, and arriving to the verdict. I feel like in many ways, this is how we approach God in our own situations in life. We build a case against him, we put him on trial, the injustices we're experiencing, the realities that don't meet our expectations, and then we gather and compile all this evidence about who God is and whether or not he's fair or just or powerful or even faithful. And we come to a verdict about God that most probably may not be true or fully true. This is why I love the message that Sedaris brings to continually consider or reconsider what we think we know about God and how, how he moves. You may or may not be dealing so much with the temptation of lust or anger or greed, but I feel the, most, the easiest, most subtle temptation that we can fall trap into is complacency in our faith, in the face of trials and challenges. I feel especially in a post-Christian, thank you for that one amen, thank you, especially in that post-Christian society. It's so easy because we've heard everything about what God is like, yet we can still sit here and be wrong, resolving in our hearts that this is what it is. This is how God is. There's nothing more to it. And I can understand personally, it's easier to sit in unbelief. It's easier to refuse to believe in promises because to have hope and faith risk then risk those expectations not being fulfilled is, I feel, even more painful. It's tiring. It's draining. And I see this is the case being brought up against Christ by the sisters in the face of the loss of their brother. They appeal to Jesus. Hey, the one you loved, the one you loved, he's sick. And Jesus says right away, this sickness, in verse 4, this sickness is not, will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And the first question I pondered was, Jesus, you said he won't die, but he literally dies. <laughs> like, why, why is this whole situation necessary to reveal your glory? I mean, you, you, you in like, a few more chapters, you're going to die on the cross and you're going to be resurrected. I mean, that's enough, I feel, to like give God all the glory. What? Why? What's the use of this? And verse 5, as the writer notes that Jesus loved Mary and her sister Lazarus, his reaction when he hears that he's sick is to stay two more days. What? Lazarus, the disciple you love, Jesus, wouldn't you be rushing over right away? And this is what Mary and Martha, uh, this is the case they build against Jesus in verse 21 and 32. We don't have to go there, but they said, if you were here in the first place, 
if you hadn't left us, if, if you had just only came exactly when we told you to come and do what you always do, like you heal others, then, then I wouldn't be going through this painful experience. How often do we in our own lives build a case against God for not showing up the way we expected Him to, for not answering our prayers right away? How quickly do we question Him when we're facing suffering and wonder, why, God, why am I experiencing this? It would be a lie to say having God in your life comes without pains and disappointments. In fact, sometimes the opposite is true. And it reminds me of the story of Job. Pages and pages and chapters of him and his friends, friends building a case against Job. And Job, is it Job or Job? Job, 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 I, Job, Job. Okay, this is Team Job. Let's go for that. And Job, they're building this case against Job, and Job is building a case against God. And they're all like going around. And, and if you think your life is hard, read the book of Job or Job. You may or may not be encouraged, I don't know. But eventually, God reveals himself in this open vision and shows him his power and authority and sovereignty as the creator of the universe. And Job Job eventually comes to this verdict about his own disposition. In Job Job 13.15, I don't know why it's so weird. He says, even if he, God, kills me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. God continually invites us to live in the tension of the realities of our broken world and the sufferings that we face and lean into those things and into God so that he may give us a personal open vision and revelation of who he is and why we should hashtag trust the process. Jumping back into verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. And the disciples said, Oh, well, I mean, if he's sleeping, like that's just, you just need a gnarly nap, and then that that fever is gone. One thing we need to realize is up until this point, the idea of the term fallen asleep had not been made synonymous with a believer's death and the promise of resurrection the way Paul writes in the epistles. This is before Christ's finished work, before the revelation. And this very miracle is actually the catalyst for his own death. After this miraculous sign, the Sanhedrin decided, we need to start the process of getting this man crucified because if he's going to be resurrecting people, everyone's going to believe. And so Jesus clearly spells it out, bro, like he's dead. Lazarus is dead. And he says this peculiar thing. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Glad? It's a good thing? I read this and I begin to think, can we truly know you, God, without pain and suffering and disappointment? Is this something to consider that with every trial that we go through, Christ is glad so that we may believe? Again, the temptation here is to give up. Oh, well, if he's not sleeping and he's dead, then why are we still going? Call it quits. There's no hope. But pressing forward in verse 21, the moment Martha sees Jesus and builds a case against him, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I love Martha's language here. 
It, it, it almost seems like it's full of faith. Oh no, someone's calling me, sorry. It's like she gives room for Jesus to ask whatever, be, whatever he wants. But I feel, as I read this, I feel there's like this hint of false humility or false re- religiosity. Like, you obviously want one thing. You obviously, obviously said, hey, if you weren't here, you would have been alive. Yet, whatever you ask, God, whatever, your will be done, God. <laughs> she could have asked him straight up, Jesus, can you raise him the dead? She could have asked him straight up. And so Jesus straight up tells her, your brother will rise again. He knows. He knows what she wants. And Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And here it is, that subtle temptation Jesus gives her a clear promise, a clear word, a fact almost. And essentially her response is, yes, I know, I've heard it before. I've heard you talk about it. Eventually we all die, one day we're all raised up. Like I know this is Christianese talk. I know this blanket statement. But she she isn't considering how Jesus could tangibly do something about her current situation at that moment in time. And how many times do we approach God, the promises of God, and we hear it, and we say it, and we read it, and we think, yes, yes, this is a great idea, this is wonderful, this is what heaven's going to look like, but I probably won't see it in my lifetime. I've heard of healings. Eventually, we'll have, you know, healthy bodies. So I've heard of that. And how often, how often do we approach trials and, and tribulations and not have much expectation for God to move? How often do we read, by his stripes we are healed? But because not everyone gets healed, some people die. So why bother believing? Why pray for healing? Why hope? Christ responds to Martha. I think this is his response to our questions. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Up until this point, Jesus has revealed himself as the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life. And now in this last sign, Jesus said, I am life itself. And he is giving Martha a choice. Will you choose me? Will you choose life? Or will you choose death. Will you choose to believe in me and put all your hopes and expectations purely in who I am right now today in this situation or just in the future? Martha says, yes, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who come into this world. It's only when we've come face to face with our pain and suffering that we can come to an understanding of the true depths of what it means when Christ says that he has won the victory. Just as the season of hope magnifies the reality of brokenness in this world, so does leaning in Christ in the midst of brokenness magnify the reality of who he is and the hope that he can bring into any situation. To hope in the midst of brokenness is to give God the opportunity to reveal himself that we may glorify him. If we don't take every broken situation as an opportunity to give God the space to reveal himself, how would we come to know that he is good? How would we come to know today that he is healer? How would we come to know today that he is restorer? How, do, how can we come to know today that he is truly powerful? How can we give him the glory? An example is in my own story. 
When I lost my father, I lost my whole family. The devil, with his taunting, says, yep, you're alone, you're not loved. Eventually, I came to know Jesus and re- realized, wow, the devil is a liar. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my life began to change and expectations began to form in my heart of what my life would look like now that I had Jesus. Things were going great. I thought I didn't even need family anymore. I have a church, and then I found a great man, very cute, very handsome. His name was Javon, and he proposed to me like, whew, thank you, Lord Jesus, God is good. And one night we had one of the biggest fights that we've ever had in our very short six months relationship. <laughs> um, yeah, he, six months, and he, he proposed. Um, and... He was having second thoughts. And suddenly I felt, I'm losing everything again. Maybe what this devil said was true. He began to torment me for days. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to think that you deserve a good life? You have no father, you have no mother, and you'll have no husband. Like, come on. Where is your God? This tormented me. His voice tormented me for days. I was suffering for days. I was, I was so close to just losing hope. I was in the verge of considering to even take my own life until I decided, I decided to choose life. I decided that my life is not mine anyways. It belongs to you, God. And yes, all this may seem true about my situation, that I am indeed broken, but I am your broken, God. And in my worship and in my prayer, I took all the pieces of my brokenness and I just surrendered it to him. And I chose to hope. And I said, God, no matter what happens, what the enemy says about me will never be true. Those words no longer will have power over me because through you, Jesus, I have a father, I have a mother, I have all that I need. I make God my everything, my family, Though I don't deserve it, I, I just said, Lord, I receive it. And I felt light. I felt the freedom in my confession. And some of, some of you may have heard this story, but the very next day, I get a call saying, we found your real mother. God resurrected a mother back into my life after 24 years. The timing in which God showed up in my life is undeniably divine. I could, I could tell God, I could come to God and say, God, you had to wait 24 years? <laughs> but the fact is, it was perfect timing. And the thing about this story is that the glory he receives whenever I tell it is undeniable. When I share it to unbelievers, when I share it to Muslims, when I share it to people who are considering, they cannot in any way, shape, or form deny that this is indeed God. It's divine. And this is what God is, is inviting us to press into with our, with our sufferings, with our situations. This is what we see happening in John 11. We see the importance of timing. Let's look at verse 32. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying, the Jews and the Jews who came with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. 
The word deeply moved in his spirit and troubled here is derived and expounded from the Greek word embrimaiomai, <laughs> maomai, which refers to snorting of horses. But when, we, when it's applied to human beings, it, it suggests anger, outrage, emotional indignation, this, this inner trembling of so much anger. And the author is not implying that Jesus is angry at Martha or towards all of the, the people grieving, but more against the pain and suffering and finality that death brings when there is no hope. Mary doesn't even make any special appeal to Jesus like Martha did. She, it was clear she accepted the situation. If you were here, it would have been alive. Too late. And then Jesus says, where have you put him? Lord, they told him, come and see. In the very famous verse, Jesus wept. Can anyone guess what principle this is at Sedaris? Bonus points if you can remember the number. Guys, I trust in you. It's part of my script. Someone's going to answer. What principle is this pointing to? Pastor. Yes, thank you, Joseph. Lead with lament. Yes, <laughs> lead with lament. And it's number nine, by the way, if you wanted to know. <laughs> In spite of his indignation and anger, he still weeps with them. But commenter commentators note that the Greek word used here in his word weep is different um, than the one used by Mary and the Jews who were also grieving. It indicates sadness and sorrow, but not the kind that is filled with despair, but a kind that is filled with understanding. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest, who have no hope. Jesus, he had hope. He was grieving, but he had hope. He was the hope. <laughs> he knew what was going to happen, but he grieved with him anyways. Whatever situation, suffering that you are going through, know that Christ is with you. He understands and he has a plan. In verse 36, we kind of move into the second movement of the evidence. Jews said, as they saw him weep, see, see how he loved Lazarus? But then some of them said, well, couldn't he open the blind man's eye? Couldn't he who opened the blind man's eye also have kept this man from dying? Here are two very different perspectives of how people tend to look at situations and the evidence. One Jew reacts to Jesus' presence and weeping as a sign of love. And the other looks at this as a sign of helplessness of the situation, that, oh my gosh, he's weeping because he can't do anything about it. I mean, couldn't he? I, he, he opened that dude's like, what's his name again? That blind man? That, he opened his eyes like, man, that's really sad. They were speaking in more of a finality than, than giving a chance for Jesus to prove himself, to show himself powerful. And, and, and because of that, Jesus is deeply moved again. He comes to the tomb in verse 38. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And he says, remove the stone. And Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he's been there for four days. Oh, Martha, oh, Martha. You just had a conversation. You just had a conversation with Jesus. And now she's pointing, still pointing out evidences against him. Like, literally, Jesus is already in action. He's about to, like, 
boom. And she's like, whoa, 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 like, Lord, like, like he's stinky now. Like, he's in the fourth phase of decay. Like, he's dead, dead, God. Like, like nada, no, no hope. And I was actually surprised to learn that Jews had, very strong, had a very strong superstition and, and custom that when someone died, they believed that the soul of the person still hovers over the body for three days. And on the fourth day, when the body begins to de- decay, hence the stench, they're like, ooh, I don't look so good. I'm out. And she's saying, hey, his soul isn't even there, God. I mean, it's not going to look that good. Like, is it even worth it? And Jesus, again, didn't I tell you in verse 40, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In this very line, Christ reveals what he meant in verse 4. This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Christ's decision to delay is a deliberate refusal to be manipulated by the circumstances and expectations of the world. It showed how he completely trusted in the Father's timing and not what the situation demanded. This delay ensured that Lazarus's death, Lazarus had been dead long enough that no one could misinterpret the miracle as mere resuscitation. We can't manipulate God. Jesus was not manipulated. God is not moved by our pains, our sorrows, and our own disappointments and hurts and urgencies. Just as when he received news of Lazarus' illness. Yes, he laments with us. He knows how he feels. He is with us in our suffering. But ultimately, God is moved by faith. What we believe about him, the hope and expectation we put in him in this situation, whether we are trusting in him and his word. Verse 41 says, they removed the stone in this beautiful picture. Jesus closing his eyes and said, Father, I know that you've heard me. Know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. So what is the verdict? This whole reason, situation, circumstance of Lazarus' death and resurrection was to reveal personally to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and all the witnesses that were present, the fullness of who he was, personally. They understood resurrection in an abstract way, but he wanted them to know personally how he alone is the resurrection, how he is the way, the truth, and the life. What a treat, what a gift, what love he had for this family, that he would use all this to reveal to them the revelations of what to come, that there will be a powerful power available for all those who believe in, me, in Jesus, a power available to all of us that is more powerful than death itself. It's like they got to see the premiere show before it was revealed to the public. And I see that in my own story, how God used my own suffering and trauma of loss and loneliness to lead me to the revelation of how only God is truly everything to me, that he is all that I need. In the midst of the suffering, I choose to put my hope in him, my faith in him, despite the odds, despite the risks of disappointment. 
And it was only after that that he brought my mom back into my life. And today, in spite of all this clear evidence of God's restoration work in my life, the revelation of who God is to me personally that I received that night was the biggest blessing and restoration of it all. God knew I needed that foundational truth in my life because here I am again, 2021, in a foreign land called the United States of America, this little city called Seattle, and I'm all alone, and I hear again the taunts of the enemy. Where is your husband now? Where is your parents now? Where is your family now? It had no power over me. It didn't torment me the way it did before, but sure, I cried. Cried a lot. But I knew in the deepest, most intimate parts of me that I will never, never, ever be alone. God is with me. He is my Emmanuel. And through that revelation, he has continued to bless me now with new family, new friends in my life, and even restoring old relationships in my life. So what is your case against God? What is the reality that did not meet your expectation? And what is something you think you know about God and the way he's working in your life that you maybe need to reconsider? What are the evidences against your case? Going into a nerd mode here, I like, I like reading um, science articles. I thought... As at a young child, I thought I would be a scientist, and I love science and all these things, so I love reading articles. And I read this article about how our brain is biased, and it was scary. It's like I don't even trust my brain anymore. Like, what am I seeing? This is not real. Um, it, like, I was like shook. Um, but one example they gave is, um, imagine, imagine if someone said to me, um, Pastor Dave is really angry at you. Like, he's so upset with you. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I'm like thinking of all the things I didn't tell him and all these things that I didn't do that I said I'd do. Like I begin to like, like, like start to freak out. And then I see him and then I take note of how he puts down, the, puts down the cup and I'm like, oh, he's really angry. And I see the twitch in his eyes. I'm like, oh my gosh, I am in big trouble. Like I begin to, to take all this evidence to support this theory. And then you talk to him and I talk to him and it's like, what? No, like who told you that? And that's the thing that the devil does. He says this lies into your head, and you begin to kind of look at the way, so yeah, yeah, God isn't here. Yeah, he, he didn't do that, and he didn't do this. Don't be like the second Jew and looking at everything in a negative perspective. Engage with God and lean into the words and the promises that you read in the Bible and look for evidence that supports the truth. I read another article of a science experiment. I really like articles of science. Sorry, guys. Um, they, they put like five doctors in the room, and they gave them one task. They said, we need you to look for this very specific tumor. We have like 100 x-rays of, uh, of lungs here, and I want you to look for a very specific tumor. And so all five of them, they were like going through all the x-rays. And obviously, you know, competition and all that. They want to get everything right. They want to find it. They're just going through all that, and then they, they present their results. And one thing they didn't realize is out of the hundred of uh, x-ray lungs, there's one x-ray that had a gorilla in it. 
like, like just the gorilla, like a whole gorilla toy in the x-ray. Five out of five of them didn't even notice the gorilla there. They were so fixated on looking for that tumor. And how often do we do that with, with, with God? We're so fixated on one thing, we don't really see the bigger picture. We don't realize, or we, we gloss through some of the biggest revelations and, and changes that he's making in our lives today, right now, even within us. There was one week, and I'm almost done. <laughs> Praise the Lord. There was one week um, in, in this month, coming into December, I work here, just for those who don't know, I work here. And so I'm kind of in tune and in touch with, 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 with the family and friends that we have here in Sedaris. And there was one week that I would wake up every morning and the Holy Spirit would prompt my heart to begin to pray about one thing or one person. He begins to tell me what to do with this person, reach out to this person. And there's something, something wrong is happening with this person. Begin to pray. And, and I just obeyed. I just, I just allowed space for God to move. And I expected. I didn't go to that person and say, oh, the Holy Spirit told me that something bad is going to happen to you. Are you okay? No. I just, I just obeyed and I looked to him and I expected in him. And sure enough, as the days would go, I hear they'll reach out or I hear this story that this, that there's a news of this um, death or the news of this disappointment or news of this sickness. And I was ready in that moment to lament, to walk with them, to support with them, to pray for them, for God. And I'm saying this not to say that I have a special gift or whatever to hear the voice of the Lord. We are all called to hear the voice of the Lord. I'm pointing this out, that God is a God who cares and sees, and he put on my heart about all these situations. And this informed me that, that God sees my own situation. He loves them enough to activate the whole body. This is what it means to be part of a body. When, when one is suffering, everything suffers. Everyone suffers together. And we feel the pain together. We lean in it together. And we, we come to God together and petition for one another just as Christ petitions us in heaven every day on the right-hand side of our Father. And it shows me, God, you love these people so much that you put on my heart to pray for them even before stuff happens. You have no idea how much God is present in your life, friends. You have no idea what God is putting on someone else's heart to pray for you while you are fixated in this situation that seemed hopeless. God is hoping for you, praying for you. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The proof of what is not seen. In the story of Jesus' birth, people were already waiting and hoping for hundreds and hundreds of years for a savior, a king. They've been given a promise from God. Kings and priests and prophets have come and gone, and they all pointed to a savior. And the moment arrives. Jesus has come into the world in the form of the baby, a baby, and the promise is here. Yet there was no room for him. Jesus came at a time when people had moved on from hoping. They were more concerned in the hustles and bustles of life, and there was no room for him. He was born in a manger. And only a few, whose hopes still remain in that promise, were able to see and recognize and give him honor where honor is due. The shepherds, the wise men. There's even a story about Simeon in Luke 2, 25-35, if you want to take note of that. It's a very interesting story. 
But even as Jesus grew and became a man and told them to their faces, I am the one, I am the promise, I am the Savior, I am the King, they still, they still did not believe. Have you been given a promise? Is there a dream or desire in your heart or an expectation in your life that doesn't seem to be coming to pass and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting? Do we have room for Jesus in our life, in our hearts? Are we hoping, have, are we continuing to believe or have we stopped? What do we do when we're, when we're in the middle of this tension? Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in what? Hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. To be a prisoner of hope simply means this. No matter what's happening, what you're going through, the enemy does not have the final say over your life. In Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is always more. There is nothing impossible for him who believes. Even if we die tomorrow, death does not even have the final say. Jesus has won the victory. He paid the price. We know this. Zechariah 9.11. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to your fortress, 12. You prisoners of hope. Verse 12. I want us to see that together. Yeah. No, uh, Zechariah 9.12. That's good too. Um, but now it's Zechariah 9.12. <laughs> Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I love that. It's just two, such two different kind of ideas, prison and hope. To be a prisoner of hope is not a shameful position to be in. In fact, it's something we should boast about. In Romans 5, 1-5, Romans 5, 1 to 5 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also boast about our afflictions. We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces what? Hope. And verse 5, I love this. I love this promise. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We may feel helpless at times, but we are never hopeless. In every situation, circumstance, we have a choice of where we, to put our expectation. The God, the ultimate judge, gives us his word, the word. He gave us Jesus. Will we believe and have hope and be completely dependent on him? Or will we choose to be prisoners of our own devices, of our own pains and sorrows, and finding other ways that only lead to more pain and sorrow? Christ has set us free 
from the bondage of sin, from the power of darkness, from the ways of this world. And he gives us today a choice, either to hope in him, to choose him, to choose life. What is your verdict? And to end, everyone says, hallelujah. (sighs) I want to read Psalm 42. It's a beautiful picture of King David building his case against God, gathering evidence and coming to a verdict. And he goes through this cycle a few times in the chapter. And 43 is also just as similar. So my last verse of the thousand verses that I shared with you guys, Psalm 42. Let's read this together. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been food day and night, while all day long people say to me, Where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior, my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still Praise him, my Savior, my God. So what is the difference now that we have Jesus? We have hope. We have hope for the future. We have hope for this world. Unpopular opinion, we have hope for politics (laughs) and economics. There is always hope. There's hope for our families. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. Let's pray.